I want to introduce uh, our speaker today. Is, uh, his name is Dr. Philip Camp. Go ahead and come up here, man, if you'd like to. Um, so I got connected with Philip through a guy named Mike Williams. You may know he's, he speaks some, been involved here. And uh, 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 Dr. Camp uh, is a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Lipscomb University. He is a big nerd. Um, <laughs> for once, you have someone really intelligent that's going to speak to you today. And uh, so... Uh, uh, and uh, Philip has a, a wife named Amy, and you have three boys. Three boys. Three boys. And so, uh, but you guys usually, you're associate minister, pastor at Natchez Trace, Natchez Church, of Trace Church of Christ. So I'm sure uh, the worship there was exactly like ours this morning. Um, they had the Backstreet Boys leading worship there yeah, too, right? Goes, that's right. That's Is that right. what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Philip, we're super glad that you're here. Um, uh, it's so helpful. One of the things we value this church is the is the different voices. You guys know I'm very protective of the pulpit and who's in here. But man, I, I'm so excited to have him come and uh, uh, excited for the message you're going to bring. So man, I'm going to turn it over to you, brother. Oh, thanks. All right. If you want to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy six, that's where we'll be in just a second. Um, I just found out. 10 or 15 minutes ago, that this is actually a homecoming for me, that this is the church that I started my life in, not in the sense that I was actually born in the church, but uh, that the first three years of my life, my parents that were members of the first Christian church uh, in the old uh, place, the old building, and until I saw the parades, I hadn't made that connection, but that's, this is where I started uh, in my journey in church. And then my dad uh, moved to Sparta, Tennessee for work, and we moved there, and, uh, but uh, it's actually, so it's kind of nice to be home. It's good to see you all again. Uh, I'm sure I look exactly the same as I did then. Uh, at least the hair is going the same direction. Um, and uh, he, uh, Adam mentioned that I, I am something of a Bible nerd. I'm one of those strange people that, whose favorite book of the Bible is Deuteronomy, which is why we're doing what it is, which I thought was weird, or many people think is weird until Adam told me his favorite was Leviticus, so I think I'm actually one up on him uh, in that regard. Um, <laughs> I know one other person for whom that's the case, and uh, we're praying for him. Um, I love it. I think it's great, uh, anybody that's interested in the Old Testament. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, we get this passage that uh, most people are pretty familiar with, if not from Deuteronomy, then from Jesus calling it the greatest command. So I'll start in chapter 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life here, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. One of the reasons I love Deuteronomy is how seriously Deuteronomy takes the sense of community and what it means to be the people, the community of God. 
It reminds us that as a people of God, that God intends to bless us. And that God intends us to give us life that's real life, true life, full life. I mean, again, notice just in the first couple of verses here, so that you may enjoy long life, and so that it may go well with you, so that you may increase. But God has never called a people, God's never blessed a people simply so that they alone can enjoy the blessing. God's calling is always also for the purpose, the sake of others. And so in a passage we won't get to today or look at today, but in Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8, God tells Israel that it's not simply for your sake, but what I want you to do is I want you to be what in New Testament terms we would call salt and light. I want you to be a beacon for the nations around so that they'll see you, and when they see you keeping this law that I've given you, it'll start raising questions. And they'll start asking, what kind of wisdom do these people have? What kind of law is this that they're observing? And what kind of God is this that would give a law like this? And so by Israel being obedient, faithful to God's law, the goal is again, on one hand, that they would be blessed, but also that they will be a light to the world around them, that others will see this and it will start raising questions about the God that they serve. Why is this community this way? Why are these people this way? Again, what kind of God is this? And as Moses speaks to the, the congregation here, one of the big things that's really important, in both for them to receive the blessing of God and to pass on the blessing of God to others, is to realize that the faith has to be kept alive in every generation. Uh, remember the story that sets up Deuteronomy, if you don't know Deuteronomy well. Deuteronomy is a story not of that group that came out of Egypt in the Exodus, but their children. Because that group that came out of Egypt in the Exodus died in the wilderness. Remember why? Because they refused to trust and obey God. And so God says, if you don't want to go in the land, fine, you won't go in the land. Turn around, go out in the wilderness, and those children that you were afraid would be made slaves to the Canaanites will in fact go in and take the land. And so now this new generation of the faithful or of God's people stands on the border and the question is, will they remain faithful and will their children remain faithful so they can fulfill God's purposes for themselves and for the world around them? And they can't do that if they allow themselves to be blended into the larger culture, in their case, the Canaanite culture. And my thinking is, is that for every generation of God's people, there's always that danger that somehow or other we'll lose our faith, we'll lose our connection with the Word of God and we'll just allow ourselves to be blended into the larger culture. That we'll stop being that salt, that light, that witness to who God is and who God has called us to be. And so it seems to me, as I think about this and as I watch in my own experiences, that keeping the Word of God alive within the community is vital. And passing on that Word, that faith, the generation and to the next generation is vital. And so one of the questions we want to ask or explore today out of this passage is how do we do that? And I found a couple of analogies helpful. I don't, they work for me. I don't know if they'll work for you. As far as how is it that we pass on faith to the next generation? And how do we keep faith vibrant and alive as, as we move forward? And the first analogy I like is of language acquisition. How many of you have ever tried to learn a new language? Okay. Uh, have you ever tried to learn it just out of a book? Uh, I took Spanish in college. After three semesters of Spanish, my Spanish consists of hola, como esta, uh, and frijoles frio, which I actually think were cool beans, which I think I made up. Uh, <laughs> and I mostly learned it out of a book. They tried to immerse us in it in the class. And even more, when I got into my graduate studies, we had to learn to read, read French and German. So again, I learned to read it out of a book. And I cannot still to this day speak French because they don't spell the words like they sound. And most of my German actually still comes from Hogan's Heroes. Uh, <laughs> Because if you really want to learn a language well, 
it's not just enough to, to read it out of a book. You have to immerse yourself in a culture that speaks that language. Almost anybody will tell you this. It's the way they try to do it in colleges, but uh, my friends who, for example, want to learn Spanish, Spanish well for the mission field end up going to places like Costa Rica, Guatemala, and those programs that for, for a year or six months you live in a house with people who speak the language, who live the culture, uh, and you just immerse yourself in it. And really, if we think about it, that's how our children learn English, right? And that's how they learn our culture is to be immersed in it. And then eventually we'll come along with some formal rules and so forth. So language immersion is one way of thinking perhaps of how we pass on the faith that we immerse are the younger generation or the, the young in the faith in this culture and in this language of faith. And the second analogy is, is somewhat akin to that, and that's the analogy of an apprenticeship. Uh, how do people learn their professions? Well, we go to college and we get education in it, but how do you really learn your profession? You learn it by walking alongside those who are further advanced in the profession than you are, usually. And so, for example, you think about a doctor, which they've worked this into their training, I mean, and would we really want a doctor who only learned everything he or she knows about doctoring from a book? They read about it. Or wouldn't we prefer a doctor who walked alongside more experienced doctors uh, over the years and saw how things were done, then were allowed to, to see how things were done and practice them under supervision before they themselves practiced? So this, so this notion of this idea of apprenticeship, I think, is important as well because it has this, this idea that people walk alongside those older, more experienced in the faith and see how faith is done and lived out and played out. And I think that's what Deuteronomy moves us toward as we begin to think about how is it that we pass on faith to the next generation. Passing on faith is like immersion into the language, the language of faith. Passing on faith is an apprenticeship where we guide and we lead and we help. And so we come to this passage, again, this well-known passage uh, out of Deuteronomy that is often called the Shema. Shema simply means, is the Hebrew for the word hear, hear, O Israel. So hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Uh, and notice where it begins. That before it begins into exactly what Israel is supposed to do, it begins with God. God is the priority. God as the center. And of course, that's where we begin. And if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, you might notice that you have something maybe slightly different than what I have. Again, my translation, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Your translation may have something like, the Lord our God, is our God the Lord alone. Uh, if you have a footnote there, it probably has two or three different options. What it literally has there is, if, if you just translate it literally, is Hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. Uh, there are no verbs, and so you have to kind of figure out what to do with it, where to place them. Uh, and scholars spend a lot of time fighting and arguing over which one of these is the best sort of understanding. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's my deep scholarly solution to this. It's ambiguous. That's always a good answer, right? And I really think it's deliberately ambiguous. I think it, it's designed to get us to reflect and think on the nature and the character of God, that God is God alone for us. There is no other God. Whatever anybody else would call a God, that's not God for us. But also that God is one. There's a single God and no other, and that he's one in his integrity and wholeness and being. So I think the ambiguity is there to get us to think about God and who he is in his nature and in his character, who he is in relationship to us. Because again, this is where we have to start if we're going to pass on the faith. It has to be clear that we're a community rooted in who God is 
and who God is in relationship to us. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we dwell there. And then we're called to love him. And you know this, that, that, that love here is not simply the idea of affection, although it certainly doesn't rule that out. But throughout the Bible, and particularly in Deuteronomy, we see that love is equated with obedience. With doing the things that God has called us to do because we trust God to the extent that says, you made us, you created us, you formed us, you saved us. So when you say do this, even though I don't always quite understand it, I know that you're, do it, you're doing it because it's what's best for me and it's what's best for your purposes. And of course you have other places like this, John 14, 15, if you love me you will keep my commandments. And so we're called to love God with our wholeness, all of our being, and it's split out in three parts I know. But I think it's a way of saying with everything you've got. So you love God with all your heart. And, and in Hebrew sort of thinking, heart is not the center of affection. Heart's the center of will or intention. So we would probably say mind more than we would say heart in our, in our sort of way of thinking. Uh, so in, in ancient Israel, if you're sending a valentine, you don't send a, a card with a heart on it because they, they don't feel, they think, they, they, they determine with their hearts. Uh, they, they feel in their gut. So you send a valentine with a small intestine on it. Uh, so you love with all your heart, your will, your intention. And all your soul, and again, soul here, is, is, we, we often have a, something of a misunderstanding of soul. Soul is not something, in their thinking, Old or New Testament, that leaves your body when you dies and goes to heaven. Soul is who you are. It's your life. It's your essence. It's your being. So yourself, your whole self. And then the last word there is really hard to translate. Mostly, it's usually translated strength. Some translations have possessions. It's really an adverb in Hebrew, and it means something like exceeding or exceedingly. So love God with all your exceedingliness. That might work. I had a class one time where we were translating this, and one of my students, she translated it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your life, and with all your... I thought, She's got it. That's brilliant. Because that's getting everything into it, and that's what it's called. Love God with your entire being. And again, love is that, that obedient response to who God is and what God calls us to do. And Jesus says, this is the greatest command. Get this one down, everything else falls into place. Everything else lines up as it should. God is the priority. And so it's essential that that wholehearted love is there as we pass on the faith. And God calls for the commands to be placed on the heart. And the language that's used there is to place on our children's hearts. He says, impress it, what he says there is impress it upon your children. And the word that's used there is a word that typically is, is used for something like whetting or sharpening an arrowhead or a spearhead. So it's almost like it's saying, it incise it within them. Work it into them. And then the question becomes, how? How do we work the word of God, the love of God into them in such a way that it manifests itself in their lives? And I think the place to begin is that, that we first have to know that word, those commands, of what God calls us to do and to be. Uh, that is, we have to know the Word of God in Scripture. And I teach Bible at Lipscomb University. I've taught there for 15 years. Uh, and I'll tell you that we have students that love Jesus. And we have students that, that wholeheartedly want to serve them. And we have students that don't know a thing about Scripture. And I'm not just talking about the ones that come out of non-church backgrounds. I'm talking about the ones that grew up in church. Now, some do, some, some do, but, 
to be honest, a lot of them, like a lot of people in popular culture, get most of their understanding of who Jesus is or who God is or what the Bible says, not from the Bible itself, but from popular culture. So their view of the Bible is shaped largely by things like Veggie Tales. And I have nothing against Veggie Tales. It's one of the few shows that's bearable for, for parents to watch with their children. <laughs> uh, um, or from movies like the Noah movie or... Uh, Exodus God's, you know, the Batman, a Moses movie, uh, Exodus God and um, Kings or whatever it is, that they learn Bible from that, not from actually what Scripture says. And I don't know where that happened, what happened along the way, where, where it stopped being where we, and I, I, I can't speak for this church, obviously, because I haven't been here uh, in 45 years, uh, but uh, I don't know where it changed. Where somehow or other we decided the Bible was boring or irrelevant or or we made it boring or irrelevant, to where we, we, we shifted off to things like topical studies and, and sort of short verse studies and things like that, just sort of launching pads or, or into sort of therapy and these kinds of things, that somehow or other the Bible lost its centrality, at least in many churches and in many places. But in order for us to pass on the faith, we have to have the content of the faith, and the content of the faith is revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, and so we impress these upon our children. We, we incise it into them. We work Scripture into them. And again, the question is, how? It's immersion. It's like learning a language. It's through apprenticeship. It's demonstrating. It's showing them how to live this out. And so as we continue through our passage, what he says to us is, talk to them about it. Talk to your children, your children in the faith, the children in the faith, about the Word of God, the command of God, the expectations of God. Live a life that's filled with that kind of conversation about who God is and what God's will is. He says, when you sit at home and when you walk along the way, that is everywhere, just wherever you find yourself. Uh, when you lie down and when you get up, the first thing in the morning, the last thing at the end of the day, and all that time in between. And so every time I talk about this, it gets me thinking just about how much does the language of God fill my daily language. And I'm not just talking about always saying Jesus or always saying God. Uh, or if it's God's will and that kind of thing, although that, that's fine. But how much is my language, my conversations with my children or my students influenced by the Word of God? And how much does it help them think about who God is and what God is doing? How much time do we spend helping them see who God is? If you move on down a little bit in the passage, and we won't quite go there, uh, or we won't go there today, but if, down in, starting in verse 20, there's this line that says, in the future, when your children ask, why do we keep these commands? And what's interesting there, the answer isn't because God said so. That's an okay answer. But when, we, when the children say, why do we keep these commands? The, the, the answer is, tell them a story. But not just any story. Tell them the story of faith. In their context, tell them about the Lord our God who brought us out of Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and brought us into this land in faithfulness to those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them the story of faith and let them understand that that's why we do the things we do because this story reveals who our God is. So if we think about it in our own context, perhaps, uh, we're sitting there and we're, we're or, uh, here standing around and we're taking communion and our children ask, why do we do this? I guess we could look for a chapter and a verse. Or we could do what Paul does and say on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took, the, he took the bread and he took the cup and said, this is my body and this is my blood, and we tell the story. Or when we baptize and our children say, well, why don't we do this? Well, because of, I, Church of Christ, I grew up in this. Acts 
Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, although we don't always emphasize that last part. Or do we do what's suggested here and say, because this is a participation in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This tells the story of faith in one sort of act, and it initiates us into that faith so that we can live it out. That is, we tell in these opportunities the story of faith, but not just in the church opportunities, but again, help them understand how all of their life fits within the mission of God. So we talk to our children about what does it mean to be the people of God at school, at work, when we're sitting around the table eating together, when we're serving together, or when we're worshiping. What does it mean to be a Christian student? Or if we think of a little older, a Christian sales clerk, a Christian musician, a Christian accountant, a Christian manager, a Christian doctor, a Christian nurse. What does it mean to be Christian and to be that? What does it mean to be a Christian son or daughter, father or mother, grandparent? So we help them think about their own lives and our lives in terms of the story of God and who God is. We immerse them in that story, in that language. Help them see that every aspect of their life in some way or other fits within that story and finds its purpose, its meaning, and its blessing there. And I think in light of what we saw, we let them ask questions too, even really hard questions. Uh, we're told that one of the reasons young people are leaving church is because they're not getting their questions answered, and it's not the sense that we don't answer questions just giving an answer, it's that they're getting pat answers, sort of formulaic answers, uh, and so they're not being allowed to explore, and maybe one of the things we need to consider is to let them ask these questions, and to push, and to probe, and to think, and not to think that that's a threat to the faith, but that's part of the way of joining the conversation, of immersing them in the language and the practice of faith. I'd also like to suggest, just as, as we think about this idea of uh, incising the word within their hearts, that maybe, and maybe you do this here, but that we get back to memorization of Scripture and meditation on the word. Uh, I don't think it's impossible. I go to my children's fourth grade. They go to, to Lipscomb Academy. I go to their fourth grade uh, program and watch fourth graders recite 26 verses of Scripture in a row. Uh, a to, they figure out an A to Z way to do it, and so they do... Uh, I go and watch the second and third graders uh, recite the entire uh, Luke narrative for the, the birth narrative of Jesus. It takes time, it takes patience, but it helps us way of immersing ourselves in the language so that even, and think, you know, in their context, in Deuteronomy, not everybody had a Bible they could take home and open up. So how do they carry the language with them? They had it in their heads. And there were regular times of the year where they would recite the, the, the whole Torah, regular times, uh, actually it was seven years. Uh, but helping us to memorize, to engage this so that it's with us all the time. And this responsibility is not simply a parent-child responsibility, but as we begin to look at this, the responsibility for passing on and carrying on the faith really works in, in, in sort of concentric circles. And so the first circle is, he says, to, to put these commandments on yourself, essentially, to tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And if, if you've seen uh, sort of strict uh, observers of Judaism, they do this literally, right? They have the, the phylacteries they wrap around their arms and the little box of scripture they put on their heads. And I love that kind of symbolism. Uh, and, and so, we, I mean, we might think in terms of like Christian t-shirts and Christian jewelry and those sorts of things. And that's fine. Christian tattoos. <laughs> I teach Hebrew 
Every year a student comes to my door and says, what's the Hebrew for? And then they give me a word, and I know what they want. They're about to get a tattoo. Because <laughs> there's no other reason to ask that question. But I'll just tell this is a side note, but I'll just tell you, if you're going to do that, you better sure you get all the dots and dashes right, because if you don't, you'll end up with something other than what you think you have on your body. I had one of my students that went into a coffee shop one time. She was taking Hebrew, and a woman had something tattooed on her hand in Hebrew, and my student went over and looked at it and said, well, that's really pretty. What does it say? And the woman said, it says beloved. Oh, that's great. My student went over and looked it up in her dictionary, and it actually said sacred heifer. <laughs> all I have to say, if you're going to get it put on your body, just be really careful with it. And the problem with, and again, those things themselves aren't bad. Maybe they say something about the kind of person that that, that, that person is, but the, the thing that's really crucial is that the life has to match up to what's written, right? I had this strange sort of streak at one point where I was doing the most embarrassing things when I had my Jesus t-shirts on. And you wonder what kind of message then that communicates. And so it's far more important that if we think about this, that, that, that I think the goal is to have the word honest and within us. And not just as memorization, but then lived out. Again, the apprenticeship things, where our children can see us, children in the faith can see us walking this out and what it looks like in real life, everyday life. And so self is the first circle, and then you stretch out and, and, and put it in the doorpost of your house. And again, in Jewish tradition, they take this fairly literally, uh, and so they have these little tubes, mezuzahs, mezuzot, that they put on their doors, and that has a little tube of scripture in it. And so they literally affix it to their house. And again, we maybe see this sometimes in homes where, for example, you walk to the door and there's a little plate on the door that says something like, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Or you go into the kitchen and there's a nice cross stitch that says something like, uh, humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that may give you a sense of the kind of people that live there. But it has to be more than just putting scriptures up, right? It has to be a household where the faith is lived out. So that it's a household where Love is shown constantly. A household where hospitality and generosity is evident. Where forgiveness is a part of everyday life. Uh, we had a couple that, that went to church with us when we lived in Richmond, Virginia, Eldon and Beth. And their house was one of those homes that just exuded holiness. Not in that oppressive sort of sense that you go, oh, one of those, right? It's just that God so permeated their family that you couldn't help but feel it and have a little bit of it rub off of you even as you left. And so you'd go into their house, and you never heard an ill word spoken. Now, maybe they did it other times, but at least when we were there. Uh, you went to their bathroom, and on their bathroom mirror, they had a prayer list. It was a church prayer list. It, it wasn't out in the open or anything, but it just, what it told you was is that they're praying for the people at church when they're brushing their teeth or whatever. And they babysat our son some, and when we'd go to pick him up, Beth would be out in the yard talking to him about the trees and the grass and the sky and how God made these. And it just flowed out of their pores. It was just a natural part of what that house was like. Uh, and that's what we want. We want a house where the children and our children in the faith are immersed in that love of God, that culture of God, that character of God. And then finally, the next one that is put it in the doorpost of your communities or of your villages, your cities, which I think for us probably would be the church community if we want to think along those lines. And so again, obviously, you want symbols, uh, visible symbols of who God is and so forth, but of all places, this has to be a place where we are immersed in who God is, where we walk alongside uh, others practicing who God is, where of all places, the church has to be that place of love and forgiveness and hospitality and generosity 
where idolatry has no hold, where we speak the language of God and not the language of nationalism or consumerism or commercialism or materialism. And those idols are pushed aside. Uh, it has to be a culture that just is dripping in who God is and who God has called us to be. And so again, within the community, uh, if we think about in terms of the household, uh, the, 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 the second circle, certainly there's, there's a place there for reading scriptures, families, either morning devotionals, evening devotionals, talk about it and what it means. And if that's the case, how much more once we get into the church community? And again, I, I'm not familiar with this church. My discussions with Adam make me think that this is the case, that, there, that there's a lot of scripture that's read here. And I, and I hope that's the case. Because the number of churches that I'm familiar with and, and listening to others talk is that sort of the pattern now is to barely read any scripture together as a community. Uh, to maybe have just a snippet of a verse and then launch off into whatever the preacher wanted to say anyway or that sort of thing, as opposed to long readings of Scripture where whole chapters or whole sections are read, or for churches that use the lectionary where the, all the lectionary readings are done in a way that continually immerses the community in the faith, where when we close our Bibles and look, there are no more golden, gilded edges because we've read all of it at some point together. And all the pages are bent and turned in a little bit uh, because we've worked through it. And we have to ask, as a community, is this a place where our children see the faith lived out and where we can pass on the faith? Uh, and this may get into a little bit of meddling, and I apologize, kind of. Uh, but if the faith is going to be passed on in the community, then it has to be intergenerational. It can't be a, a place where at all times we segregate the young and the old, we segregate by age groups and professional groups and things like that. Because you can't learn to speak a language if you're never around those who speak it better than you. You can't learn to speak it well. You can't learn to practice if you're not around those who don't practice. And so especially maybe in bigger churches, you see that you have like youth service activities and church or adult service activities instead of them walking side by side and doing it together so they can have those conversations. Uh, that you do have at times youth worship and adult worship. So that the language of, and I, and I realize that puts a burden on the preacher too, to, to be able to communicate in a way that, that communicates broadly. But where they're hearing alongside those who are more advanced in the faith, they're hearing this language of faith where they can talk to them about it. Uh, there have been studies that have been done. We have a woman at our, our, our church, Holly um, Allen, who her specialty, her research has been on uh, the spiritual growth of children spiritual formation of children. Uh, and what she's discovered is she did it, her context was in small groups, and she looked at, she studied small groups where, uh, church small groups where they were intergenerational, young and old, did everything together in the small groups, and where they separated out by age in the small groups. And whatever measures they used, they found that the, the intergenerational children were far ahead of the, the segregated ones. And it has something to do with that conversation of faith that goes on and by the way those groups allowed the children to fully participate in so they prayed they, they read scripture they spoke up they allowed full participation by the children but there's something to that it takes a community to raise a christian and to raise them fully and well and so my my, my call out of this passage what i'm hearing out of this is that just like acquiring a language, just like apprenticeship, what it calls for to pass on the faith to keep the faith vibrant and alive to all generations is that immersion in the language and practice of faith. 
So we teach that language of faith. We teach the skills of faith because it's not going to come unintentionally. It's not going to come without some sort of thinking about how this is done. I spoke on this passage one time at, at a church in Atlanta or near Atlanta, and one of the elders came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, we've already talked about this. And he meant Deuteronomy 6, which actually thrilled me to death because somebody was talking about Deuteronomy. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, we as the elders called the parents of the church together. And we said, you've got your children for about 18 years and they're going to go off to college and you will no longer be the primary influence in their life, if you are now. What kind of children do you want them to be in terms of their faith? And the parents started listing off things, that, where they, what they thought the kind of markers were that were important. And then the elders' next question was, what are we doing to get there? And they started to create the kind of community that would move their children to be the kind of children that they wanted them to be when they left. But again, as families, as churches, this has to be thought about and planned and it has to be intentional in some way. So that our children and our children's children in the faith may enjoy the blessings of God in Jesus Christ, that true life. So that we can fulfill God's mission to be light and salt, to carry on and pass on those blessings to others in the world around us, that they may come to know Jesus Christ, the living word of God, and so be saved, and so be blessed, and so be given purpose in life. And so for my prayer for all of us is that we will learn to immerse ourselves and our children in the language and practice of faith. To love God as individuals and as a community with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, so that we may know the blessings of God, and so that we may share the blessings of God.